I invite you to please turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. We already read the text during our second reading for this morning, so I won't read it for us now. But as we look at our text, and I invite you to keep your Bibles open there, one of the main themes I want us to consider is the fact that in all four Gospels, the disciples, the way they're described, and many of the Jews that were following Jesus couldn't understand why Jesus had to suffer and die. It's a common theme in the Gospels. They couldn't comprehend why Jesus had to suffer and die. We know that in Jesus' day, many of the Jews expected that a Messiah would come from God. They had a messianic expectation. But they did not expect a suffering Messiah. They expected the Messiah to be a powerful, conquering king. He was the one who they believed would come in the power of God to ultimately crush Israel's enemies, specifically the Romans, and that he would establish his throne in Jerusalem. This was their messianic expectation. And we see hints of this in the Gospels as we kind of get an insight into what the disciples and many of those who were following Jesus expected of him. There's the example in John chapter 6, verse 15, where after Jesus feeds the 5,000, this wonderful, great miracle of feeding a crowd of people. Uh, and consider the fact that in the first century, food was scarce. It was something that you had to work hours a day just to procure and then to prepare. And here was this man who, in the blink of an eye, miraculously is able to feed more than 5,000 people. There were more because there were men, women, and children. After he does the miracle, people are so amazed by it. We read in John chapter 6, verse 15, that they wanted to make him king at that very moment. He was now fulfilling their messianic expectations, this glorious Messiah, and they wanted to make him a king by force. We read there, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew that his mission was not to become a glorious king, but he first had to suffer and die for the sins of his people, and then and only then would he be exalted. Another example is in Mark chapter 10, verse 37, where James and John asked Jesus to grant them to sit, one at his right hand and one at his left hand, in his glory. We read in verse 41 that when the other disciples heard about the request that they asked of the Lord Jesus, the other disciples were indignant. They were angry with James and John, not because they asked for such a thing, but because they asked for it before the other disciples had thought of it. It's kind of like when you're carpooling with friends and somebody calls shotgun, and you're indignant. Why? Because they thought of claiming the front seat before you did. And in a sense, James and John are calling shotgun. They want to be of first importance in Christ's kingdom and his reign before the other disciples, because this is their expectation. He's going to set up an empire, and we want to sit 
one on his right and one on his left. And even Peter, the apostle, the disciple Peter, when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, you recall he, he couldn't believe it when Jesus corrected him and by teaching him that he, Jesus, as the Messiah, would not set up a glorious political empire in Jerusalem, but he would instead suffer many things. He would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. This was Jesus' mission. And this theme of the crucified Lord of glory scandalized the disciples. It scandalized many in the first century, and it continues to scandalize many today. The cross remains a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And yet, loved ones, as we consider Jesus' mission and the reason why he came to earth, we see in his life a pattern of humiliation before exaltation. We see suffering before glory. We see in the Lord Jesus Christ a life of obedience that was characterized by humiliation, first by his incarnation, then his suffering, and then his death. Why? Why is that the pattern that we see in his life? Well, because this is the only way of salvation for his people. What we see in the life of the Lord Jesus and in the mission of the Lord Jesus, and what we see in what the writer to the Hebrews is writing here in chapter 2, is that he is helping us and his audience to understand the reason for the Incarnation the reason for why Jesus humbled himself. We see described here in chapter 2 of Hebrews that in order for the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem his people from their sins, to accomplish his mission, it was necessary. It was absolutely necessary that he be born under the law, that he be born with a true human nature, yet without sin, and that he suffer and that he die. What we see is that this was God's plan from the beginning. And it was a perfect plan because it was designed by a perfect, all-wise, all-powerful God. When uh, I was a kid, I used to play a video game called Sim City. And I didn't say Sin City, not like Vegas, but it was called Sim City. I think it was short for Simulated City. And in the game... The goal was to build a city. You'd start with kind of like a blank canvas and set up roads and waterworks, set up electrical grids and buildings. And the goal was to build a thriving city, to manage taxes and to make sure that that the city wouldn't end up going into chaos because of riots and starvation. You know, as I was playing this game as a kid, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just playing a game. And so when we talk about God, what we need to understand, loved ones, is that it is the complete opposite with God. When we talk about God and the way that he planned redemption, all the way back from before creation, 
And the way he established the foundations of the earth and planned moment by moment everything that would happen, he did it in an all-wise, all-perfect, all-holy way because that is who he is. That is who our God is. Everything that we see in creation, from the fall to the movement of every molecule, everything is governed according to the providence of our perfectly wise and perfectly holy God. And therefore, therefore, every aspect of Christ's ministry, his incarnation, his humiliation, his suffering, and his death, it was all by design. It was by perfect design. And that's what we see in our text here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, that the incarnation was for our redemption, it was for propitiation, and it was for identification. So let's consider first the connection between Christ's incarnation and our redemption. We read in verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as we see in verse 10, that phrase, it was fitting, it's a key phrase. It points to the fact that the incarnation of the Lord Jesus and his suffering was all part of God's divine plan. That it was all part of God's plan from the beginning. We as Reformed Christians, we often speak of the covenant of redemption, which is the covenant or the agreement that was made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the world was even made. And it's in this covenant, again, before creation, that God the Father gave a people to the Son, and the Son agreed to fulfill all that was necessary for the redemption of the people that were given to him, all that was necessary for their salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul in referring to this covenant of redemption, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he continues in verse 5 by explaining that it was in this covenant before creation that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That we were predestinated before the foundation of the world in Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 1, describes this covenant so clearly. We read there that God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. As the mediator, he is the prophet priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. And then it concludes in this way. God gave to him, to Christ, from all eternity, a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified, the covenant of redemption being explained there between the Father, the Son, and also between God, the Holy Spirit, 
because God the Holy Spirit was a party to this covenant, because the Father and the Son agreed to then send the Holy Spirit into the world to bear witness to Christ and to apply to the elect all the benefits that Christ obtained for them. And so, loved ones, when we speak about the incarnation of the Son of God, of Christ taking on flesh in order to save his people through his obedient life, suffering, and death, what we see is that this was all in the plan of God from the beginning. That it is by his suffering and death that he will bring many sons and daughters to glory. If you recall, last week, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, There, the writer to the Hebrews speaks of the dominion that God gave to Adam, a dominion that was diminished because of Adam's sin. And that then Christ is described as the second Adam, who by his obedience and by his bearing the curse, redeems the dominion by fulfilling again that covenant of works. And so in Christ now, By faith in him, you and I are now given dominion, again, in Christ. The very dominion that Adam lost. A dominion that will be fully and finally realized when we reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And what is necessary in considering this is to consider that this was all a result of Christ's willingness his willingness to become the second Adam. To take on the very human nature that sinned against God. To be willing to be made like us in every respect. Fully human. In order to redeem us from the curse of sin. Because unless the Son of God took upon himself our humanity, and unless he was willing to suffer for us, we know that no one else could have suffered to help humanity. No angel, no other being. Who would have had to suffer? Who would have had to bear the wrath for sin? You and I for an eternity. God's promises to his people would have remained unfulfilled. And the dominion that we now have in Christ would have never been given to us. And loved ones, that's what the author is describing here at the end of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And as we look at that phrase, it's important to note that he's not saying that Jesus was sinful or broken and he had to be improved, but he is saying that Jesus, as he lived his life, and demonstrated his obedience to the Father's will moment by moment, every minute of every day, completely obedient to God's will, that Jesus was demonstrating that he was perfectly fulfilling all of his covenant obligations. All of the obligations that he took upon himself in that covenant of redemption and fulfilling the covenant of works uh, which was made with Adam later on. This is a redemption that was planned from before creation, that was fulfilled, as we read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, in time, 
through his incarnation, suffering, and death. All a part of this eternal plan of God. So loved ones, just, just pause here for a moment. Just pause. And consider the glory of what we see explained for us in this text. That you and I have been redeemed. We have been saved. Not through our own strength or wisdom or our own might, but through Christ who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and who was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, as the Nicene Creed summarizes it. This was all. This was all for us. It was a plan that was established by our triune God before we were even created. He had us, loved ones, on his mind and on his heart before we even existed. Now, children, I know that many of you like surprise parties. And they're fun. Right? You get gifts, you get cake. Who doesn't like cake? Right? And your friends are there. Surprise parties are great. But when I think of surprise parties, you know, what I think is the most special about them is the planning that went on beforehand. That your parents knew that your special day was coming up, and so without you knowing it, and without you even asking for it, what did they do? They slowly began to plan this celebration, began to plan this party, sometimes days, weeks in advance. Why did they do this? Because they love you. You have no idea what they're doing. You're just going along, and all the time they are planning, preparing. They're working behind the scenes, setting things up, making things perfect, so that when you show up, the celebration is ready. And that's one of the aspects of of our redemption that makes it so glorious, isn't it? That God, the Father, God, the Son, And God, the Holy Spirit, planned it all without our knowledge, without our asking for it. It was all planned out perfectly. And today, loved ones, at this very moment, you and I can experience the joy of this redemption that was planned and that was accomplished by our Savior. Secondly, what we see in our text is the incarnation was also for our propitiation or for the propitiation of our sins. We see this clearly described in verse 17. We read in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what does it mean, as we see there in verse 17, that Christ made propitiation for the sins of the people. A simple definition for propitiation is that it is a wrath-removing sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. It means that Christ, when we speak of him making propitiation, it means that Christ bore God's wrath and the curse that was 
upon all God's people as a result of sin. Both the sin that has been imputed to us from Adam by his original sin and the guilt of sin that we accrue on a daily basis as we sin daily against God's holiness. That that wrath for sin was propitiated by God, was born by Christ, not by God, but by Christ on the cross. And in order for us to understand propitiation, we first need to understand God's holiness, right? to understand why God is even wrathful in the first place. And the reason that God is wrathful, we read in Scripture, is that God is holy. He is holy, 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 as we read in Isaiah chapter 6. The holiness of God is the only attribute that is emphasized three times like that in Scripture. That God hates sin. That for him and to him, sin is cosmic treason against the Creator. It's an offense to everything that makes him holy. And so because of that, he is wrathful towards sin and to those who are sinful. And it's in his incarnation, then, that Christ took upon himself the very same human nature that sinned against God in Genesis 3. See, the very same humanity upon which was the curse of sin was born by Christ. And it was in that nature that Christ then propitiated God's wrath on the cross. That the one who was sinless became sin for us, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. One of the early church fathers said it this way. He said, the Son had to become flesh. The Son had to be incarnated. Why? Because he could not redeem that which he did not assume or take on. For the whole Christ assumed the whole me, writes this early church father. For what is unassumable is incurable. And so this is why we read in verse 17 that, that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. In being made like us and in taking on a true human nature, he became our merciful and faithful high priest. And as our high priest, he didn't offer animal sacrifices, but he offered himself. He placed himself on the altar of God and propitiated our sins in his body on the tree. This is how much he loved us. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, as we consider this, especially this text in Hebrews chapter 2, I want us to consider the fact and see that the author is pointing to a profound truth about the cross. He is pointing to the fact that on the cross, the Lord Jesus actually accomplished our salvation. He didn't die to make salvation possible, but on the cross, when Christ died, he actually died for sin. And he actually obtained, attained our redemption. Now, theologians sometimes refer to this as the extent of the atonement. Some Christians believe, when speaking about the extent of the atonement, they believe that 
Christ died only to make salvation possible for all. Uh, That by his death on the cross, he merely created the opportunity for some to be saved, for those who would eventually choose him. So they would argue people's actual redemption depends upon their own choice. Like someone drowning first has to reach out for the life preserver in order to be saved. Or someone who is sick has to reach and take the medicine in order uh, to be healed. These Christians are sometimes called semi-Pelagians or Arminians. But we believe, we believe as Reformed Christians that Scripture teaches a definite redemption or what some would call a particular redemption. It's sometimes even called limited atonement. We believe that Scripture teaches, and we see it evidenced throughout the Bible, that Christ suffered and died for the purpose of saving only the elect. And that purpose is actually accomplished in the cross. That Christ didn't merely make salvation possible, but he really saved to the uttermost every person for whom he laid down his life. We read in verses like Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, of the angel's declaration to Joseph, speaking of Mary, that she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Christ, speaking about what he would accomplish on the cross, he says, I will give my life as a ransom for many. And he promised that he would actually save all that the Father had given him, we read in John chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Apostle Paul states that only those who are predestined of God will actually receive salvation. And so wonderfully present also in Jesus' prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 9 through 10, this, this doctrine that we learn about the definite redemption that Christ would accomplish. Christ there says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. We see it throughout Scripture. And loved ones, we see it in our text so clearly. In verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the everyone referred to in verse 9, the children that have been given to the Son. We see it also in verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, these children that have been given from before the foundation of the world, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that he might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What we see is that the cross accomplished a victory over Satan that is complete, a victory that will be fully realized in the age to come. What we see throughout Scripture is that the Lord Jesus laid down his life for his people, for his sheep, for his church. And what we need to see, loved ones, as 
some might stumble and have a difficult time with this doctrine, we need to see this teaching within the scope of the whole counsel of God, within the scope of all of Scripture. That this doctrine of definite redemption or particular redemption, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere during the Reformation, during the Synod of Dort, but it organically unfolds out of biblical revelation. We see it in the covenant of redemption. Again, that covenant that we spoke of, that covenant in which the Father elects a people and the Son agrees to redeem those elect. The Spirit agrees to apply the work of the Son to the elect. God creates then the world for his elect. God then reveals himself to the elect through signs and wonders. And later on through the written scripture, as he gives the ability to hear and to see by the power of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. And then Christ comes in the fullness of time as the mediator for the elect and atones for their sin. And so this by no means, loved ones, by no means limits the atonement, but it makes it an even more glorious atonement. That he is not merely a potential savior, but he is an actual savior. He's a complete savior. That he has made propitiation. That for you, And for I, for those who are in Christ, there is no wrath against us. God is not angry toward us. We have the assurance of pardon. That is one of my favorite parts of the worship service, to hear that assurance, the word from the scripture, after confessing sin, after admitting how short I fall of God's glory, hearing from the word that I am forgiven, not because of my merits, but because of all that Christ has accomplished for me and all that has been imputed from him to me. And thirdly, incarnation, we read, was for identification. It was for redemption, for propitiation, and thirdly, it was for identification. And Jesus here in our text is called our brother. And he's called our brother to show how completely and fully he identifies with us. One thing we see in Scripture is that the Lord Jesus has many titles. He is called the Messiah. He is called the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Redeemer. He's a prophet, priest. King. He's all of these things. And all of these titles show his glory, show how high he is above us. And yet, when we hear the fact that he is referred to as our brother, it is this title that gives us immediate connection with him, doesn't it? That he is our brother, he is bone of our bones flesh of our flesh. He is our brother, our very flesh and blood. And he's not ashamed, loved ones, to be known as our brother, to be identified with us. We read in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 2, 
That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You know, in view of how highly Jesus is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1, one would think that he would be unwilling to identify with sinful human beings. The glory that he possesses in his divine nature and his sinless perfection in his human nature. One would think that he would be hesitant to identify with us fallen human beings. And yet, what we see in Scripture, what we read here of Christ, is that he calls us brothers. That we are his family. And as our brother, as bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh, he is able, we read, to help us daily. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is an encouragement for us to pray and to seek him. It was an encouragement for early Christians, for the Hebrews, as we read of the fact that they were being persecuted, that they were being oppressed and opposed and rejected. And they were called, and you and I are called, to think of Christ to seek his aid and his strength because he is our brother. And as our brother, he is both merciful and faithful. Our temptation might be to think that he doesn't care about our struggles, to think that he doesn't understand, to think that, you know, he's so distant from my reality here on earth. He's highly exalted. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has no idea what it's like to struggle to pay the bills. He has no idea what it's like to deal with physical illness, with mental anguish. He has no idea about how hard it is to obey God, to love my wife, to love my children, to work daily for his glory. It is so difficult. He doesn't know what it's like. He doesn't know my weaknesses and my pain. The writer to the Hebrews gently reminds us in verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Loved ones, the Lord Jesus knows our pain. He knows our struggles, and if we go to him in prayer with our pain, and struggles and temptations, he will never cast us away or reject us. We are instead exhorted to cast all our anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. We are exhorted to come to him. All who who labor and are heavy laden, the promise is that he will give us rest. He says to you and to me today, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the one, beloved, who was made like you and me in every way, but without sin, to deliver us from sin and to help us in all of our times of need. Amen.